Hey, Lamar, I don't think the I don't think these guys know it, but we actually have to file for a permit from the city when we put that much firepower on stage. That's like that's cons you got to get a license like when you do Never mind, that's just a joke. Hey. I found your gum. Seriously, Christy, are you serious? You should know I'm going to be super OC. I got to get all the pages flat to feel good about this and there's this lump and I'm like, "What's the lump? It's a peppermint lump." Anyway, Morning. I sure hope you weren't hoping for high polish on a October morning in, in Austin, Texas. Welcome to ANC. I see you, Mark, up there hiding. That's why they make glasses all the way to the balcony. Hey, little commercial. Guys, some of you um, who come faithfully to the 11 o'clock, could we maybe over time convince maybe 40 of you to think about the 930? We have, we have, thanks, thanks, daughter. We'll discuss this at dinner. We have like a few levers we can pull to sort of take pressure off the pressure cooker of the 11 o'clock. One of them is convince some people, maybe pay some people to go to 9.30. I don't know. You know, you can still make brunch at Moonshine if you come to the 9.30, right? Nobody likes that except my family. Anyway, that's one of the levers. Another lever might be just scare some people off. You know, when Jesus had a problem with the crowd, he told them about eating his skin and they kind of left. So we could, we could try that. That's, that's not a bad idea. So welcome to ANC. My name is Jason. If you've been here the last two weeks, you've, this is the first we've met. Hey, it's nice to meet you. Oh, yeah, I've been coming for two weeks. Who are you? Oh, well, you just caught me in two weeks out of the saddle. But it's good to be here. Um, as you know, and I'm sure that's not a surprise, we do things a little differently around here. Anybody shocked? Not really. Um, not surprisingly, we're going to approach the sacraments a little differently than maybe the churches of your upbringing. Maybe the churches on the corner of the street where you live. So we're going to talk about baptism today, and at the end of the service, we actually have uh, an open invitation to anyone who hasn't yet signed up. That's fine. If you are feeling at the end of our talk today that you are, um, you, the only way to calm your pounding heart would be to get in the horse trough with us and do a baptism, we're going to offer you the opportunity to do that in the fellowship hall, which is right around the corner from here after the service. I guess it depends on what particular tradition you come from, but by most counts, there's something like seven sacraments. Okay, for all of you Protestants who have no idea what that is, I'm going to read those just in case. You'll recognize a couple, maybe three. Uh, the Eucharist, right? Marriage, uh, confirmation. By the way, I still believe in marriage. We came through a big family. Can I call it a family wedding? Trey's daughter was married on Friday night, and we had lots and lots of fun. I still believe in the sanctity of marriage. I still believe in the lifelong commitment. I still believe that's what makes it holy. Okay, anyway. Different sermon. Eucharist marriage, there's confirmation, right? When the young person becomes a fully confirmed member of the community of faith. There's the last orders, there's reconciliation, prayer for the sick, which we obviously believe in because we do every week in the back, uh, and, then, and then baptism. So if you define the sacraments, which most do, as those human rituals that uniquely convey divine grace, then I can agree that most of those seven are sacramental. We've argued strenuously here at ANC over the last several years about the sacrament of marriage, for example, that it is and that it should be available to any two people willing to commit to one another completely, exclusively for life. As you know, we observe the Eucharist weekly, the, the communion, maybe in your tradition we called it the Lord's Supper. It, you can call it whatever you want. I, I prefer the word Eucharist because it kind of unifies us with people who call it that around the globe. And then baptism we do whenever we think it's appropriate, whenever we think we've seen enough faces, new emails from people saying, I'm finding my way back to faith. I, you know, how do we become part of this kind of a deal? So we open the horse trough, essentially. We fill it with a hose 
with whatever temperature the hose gives us and we dunk people or sprinkle or however you want that done. You see, the truth is about baptism is it's as ancient a Christian symbol as there is. It goes all the way back before the church age. Ironically, it's also among the most fought over symbols of the church. Did you know that? Isn't that sad? Isn't that a little bit sad? Good people, and I mean this, good people of faith, our cousins, our sisters and brothers in faith, diminish, insult, and excommunicate one another over different views of how baptism works. Maybe you didn't know that. Which to me is super sad because it's supposed to be a place of grace, is it not? A place where we meet the Spirit of God and yet we fight over it. Somehow, we still struggle to fully understand how bread, water, and wine actually work. And I guess I thought that maybe God picked simple things for simple minds because we wouldn't fight over it. And lo, these 20 centuries later, here we are. So in the brief moments we have together, I want to talk about why we bother with baptism. I want to describe our ecumenical posture and what that word essentially means is ecumenical posture is basically our openness towards other Christian traditions who do this a little differently. And maybe even, if I'm lucky, I want to add a fresh new angle that hopefully reminds all of us who have already been baptized of our baptismal vows, of the promises we made God in those waters. And if I do this right, you should be motivated, maybe if you haven't yet already, to jump in the water with us today. Perhaps your heart is pounding even, even now. But at the very least, I want you to be proud of your little community of faith. I want you to be proud of our openness towards this sacrament and our willingness to make room for different views on what's actually going on in the water. By the end of our time together, maybe you'll join us. We've got basketball shorts and towels from Walmart, which Trey specifically said, wash before I brought them. Does anybody know why you'd want to wash towels before you bring them? It's a complete, even Juan knows, it's a total revelation to me that a towel doesn't work until you wash it. What sort of nonsense is this? Is anybody with me? What do they spray that with? If you're a towel, you have one job. Dry stuff. Trey says, wash them. But that was before the wedding. I thought, ah, that's Trey being picky. I'll just pick them up from Walmart and bring them. So if you get one of those towels today, I guess it will move the water around and leave you full of fuzz. Did you know this, Brandon? Even Brandon knew this. How am I the last to know? Larry King, in all honesty, confessed to me that he didn't know that either. Right, Larry King? And Larry King's a couple months older than I am, so. Anyway, let's start by talking about why we do it. Why do we baptize? Why do we do this ancient symbol? Why do we still maintain this? Well, for starters, we do it because Jesus did. He submitted himself to the waters of baptism, administered by his cousin John at the River Jordan. He went out with the gathered crowds as an adult, and he lined up, and against the refusal of his cousin said, nope, this has to be for me. So we do it because Jesus did it, but we also do it because according to Jesus, his final words and the instructions to his followers, it's part of what it means to preach the gospel. So we do it because there's this little marriage of repent and be baptized. It goes together almost every time we hear Jesus mention it or Peter write about it or Paul write about it. So we do it because Jesus did, but we do it also because we were commanded to. Let's read those words in Matthew 28. So this is after he was crucified after he was buried and after he rose on high, he's got some last instructions for the, for the 11, right? And we remember why they're 11 because last, year, last week, Lamar taught us about the 12th one who was the betrayer at the table the night before Jesus died. By the way, I love that image of Jesus reclining at the table in the presence of his betrayers. I may have used that image for motivation all throughout this week, but you'll see why that makes sense. Matthew 28, verse 16, most of us know it as the Great Commission. 
It reads this way. Then the 11 disciples went to Galilee, to the mountain where Jesus had told them to go. When they saw him, they worshiped him, but some doubted. Verse 18, then Jesus came to them and said, all authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. Therefore, go and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son of the Holy Spirit, and teaching them to obey everything I've commanded you, and surely I'm with you always to the very end of the age. Jesus didn't spend a ton of time explaining the sacrament of baptism. He just did it, and then he commanded us to do it. John's baptism is a little confusing because it was a baptism of repentance of sins, which makes it odd that Christ would submit himself to that but he did to fulfill the ancient prophecy. So we do it because we're told to and because Jesus did. Here's my question for us today. I know we come from many different Christian traditions and many different backgrounds. Here's the question. How do we do it? Do we sprinkle? Do we dunk? Or maybe even more importantly, when? When do we do it? As infants? As young adults? Maybe as adults? You see, there's two great rites of passage that I believe are worth commemorating and observing. One of them is when a child is blessed into our family by extension through yours, and somehow the church wants to gather around and say, this is new life that we accept from God, and so you can call that baptism, or you can call that dedication. But then there's a separate rite of passage when that child becomes uh, fully aware of the world and how it works and what faith looks like, and they want to take their own step in, and you can call that second step baptism, or you can call that second step confirmation. It's the same two rites of passage. You follow me? How and when do we do it? The answer at ANC is yes. And I hope that disappoints you. (laughs) By the way, in parentheses, in case you're new around here, we will consistently disappoint you if you're spoiling for a fight over the precise doctrines of the sacraments in this place. We're just going to set, we're just going to upset you. Outside of the ferocious, unconditional love of God and the radical calling on the church to share that love with all people, We don't fight about much. We really don't. So if you're looking for that, let me help you find a place that that might, you might find that. You see, Trey was raised Southern Baptist. I'm pretty sure so was Brandon. Is that correct? Brandon and Jen were Southern Baptist too. I was raised a Pentecostal missionary kid by deeply reformed theological missionary parents in a world that understood itself to be first anti-Catholic, if not completely post-Catholic in any sort of meaningful way. So we come from different traditions. I went to a very progressive seminary and somehow I came out a Wesleyan Methodist. So you figure, not really, we call that sausage, I guess is what you might call that. But we're all over the map. We're all over the map on this, okay? You can always count on us to pay more attention to the posture than the mechanics of a thing. And why do I say that? Because most of you who grew up in distinct traditions, they subscribe to a very specific way of understanding what happens in the baptismal waters and what happens in the Eucharist. I mean, it was, it was nails for this reason and this council and this time and this theologian. And so what I'm trying to tell you is that what we obsess on around here is our open posture towards the sacrament and allowing it to be a place where God invites us into some kind of an exchange. I would call that an ecumenical posture if that's too big of a word, just think of that as open to the various ways the Christian tradition understands this. You see, many of us in this room are recovering Catholics. You'll never hear me disparage that tradition. Trust me, if there's a root system on which to grow faith, that one is as good as any as I have ever seen. But many of us in the room are still recovering Protestants. That's also a wonderful root system upon which to grow a new life of experience and faith. So on this and every other non-essential, I think we should err on the side of charity. What do I mean by that? Meaning, we will refuse to divide and to shame one another for landing on different sides of this issue. People come to me all the time and say, I was baptized as a child. I feel really self-conscious about that. What should I do? Baptism is baptism, y'all. 
I'm not going to argue with, with you about when it is. But if you were baptized as a child and you feel like it's time for you to make a different kind of statement than that initial welcome into the family of faith, the waters are also open for you. We are just not going to shame and divide and judge one another for landing on different sides of this issue. You see, to us, Jesus is essential. Love is concrete and love is essential. The sacraments and the mechanics around how they are celebrated are essential to others, but to us, they are places we cherish and we preserve, places that Christ has, been, has promised us to meet us. But they have no, now hear me, they have no built-in license for us to reject one another if we understand them slightly differently. You hear what I'm saying? There's just no license to hate within the gospel of Christ. The church has generally done one of two things with the sacraments. Either they, number one, explain them to death until there's nothing of meaning left. We basically say there's nothing happening, there's nothing happening, there's nothing happening, there's nothing actually happening until guess what? There's nothing actually happening. Or we hold space for mystery and leave them alone. And somehow they always stand just outside of our ability to understand. So those are the options the church has generally exercised. Either explain it to death and make it science or make room for the mystery. This won't surprise you. I admire mystery and generally avoid shoving divine things into little logical capsules because I find them to be arbitrary and not that much fits anymore. I have the kind of mind that has to erase a photo to take a photo. That's actually funny, 11 o'clock, good grief. <laughs> See, I've done the hard work. I got the degree. I spent thousands of pages reading what the great fathers and mothers of the church have written and said for all these centuries, and I don't think they've moved our understanding on the Eucharist and on the baptismal font yet. They just haven't explained the mystery away. So the two basic takes, and these could be either Catholic and Protestant or however you want to look at this. Number one, that baptism saves you that there is no salvation without baptism. That would be one view. The other view would be that there, it's just a public uh, confession that we make to follow God. It's just a meaningful thing we declare to the people around us that we are choosing to follow God. And this might also shock you, but both of these have significant scriptural weight behind them. Notice that my choice of words, significant, but they don't have in any sense, I would say, exclusive or conclusive weight that it's one or the other. For 20 centuries, the universal church has believed that for a Christian doctrine to be trustworthy, it had to be two things. Number one, it had to be apostolic, and number two, it had to be primary. What does this mean? We have to be able to locate it in the teachings of the apostles, which were the people around Christ at the time. And number two, it has to be primary, means it has to, it has to go all the way back to the beginning. It can't be something that we pick up in the Middle Ages or in the late 1900s. For something to be trustworthy, people of faith have always said it has to be apostolic and primary. Well, I have to tell you, Baptism is both. Let's read what Peter, who is both apostolic and primary, not surprising, says in Acts 2. So think of the very beginning of the transition from the ministry of Christ to the church era. After the great sermon he preached to the people gathered in Jerusalem, they were pierced with conviction and demanded to know what, what, what must we do next? What do we have to do now? Peter says these words in Acts 2 verse 38. Repent and be baptized. There it is, right? That little word formulation. Every one of you in the name of Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of your sins. And you will receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. The promise is for you and for your children and for all who are far off, for all whom the Lord God will call. So if you're invested in a way of reading this that says it's only for adults, it's never for kids, and it's not about salvation, you got a little problem there with Acts 2. Later in Peter's ministry, he writes in an epistle named after him, 1 Peter chapter 3, reads this way. To those who were disobedient long ago when God waited patiently in the days of Noah while the ark was being built. 
sorry, that's a half sentence. In it, only a few people, eight in all, were saved through water, Peter writes. And this water symbolizes baptism that now saves you also. Not the, not the removal of dirt from the body, but the pledge of a clear conscience towards God. It saves you by the resurrection of Jesus Christ, who has gone into heaven and is at God's right hand with angels, authorities, and powers in submission to him. Now you say, oh, wait, preacher, hang on, this is Texas here. You're reading from one of those funky Catholic Bibles. Nope, that's actually in your Bible too. Peter is basically saying salvation is tied with the symbol of baptism. If you came from a family obsessed with getting your infants baptized because you saw salvation in the waters of baptism, hear me, don't be ashamed of that. That's only, oh, 15 centuries old, 20 centuries old, right? There's a thought I'd like you to consider, however, after we talk about the Protestant way of looking at baptism. Most of us grew up, I think, in churches that invited us to make a public statement of an inward faith at the water's edge. As adults, I think that would be most of us. We were taught that infant baptism was silly. How could a child make an adult's decision? So we turned our nose up at it and refused to recognize the legitimacy of, oh, half of Christianity. Leave it to us. We would say, certainly Jesus was an adult as he was baptized, and so was the Ethiopian eunuch who was traveling along with Philip in Acts 8 when they stopped the chariot and said, why should I not be baptized? We say, well, Jesus was an adult, and so was the Ethiopian. And then we read the writings of Peter. In the writings of Paul, who would later say, literally, this is dying and rising to new life, we say, of course, it has to be believer only. What I want you to hear me say is this. The different views of baptism, including the how and the when, deserve our patience and deserve our deference. They both have ample, significant biblical witness. Here's what I would like to add to our conversation today. Whether you are Catholic or Protestant, listen to me closely. I'm talking about an angle that can help both of us perhaps recover something amazing about baptism. Here's the question, who is doing the action in the baptismal waters? And who is receiving that action? The biblical concept that Jesus and his crew seem to be summoning is that of covenant, of course, which, of which we are the recipients. The primary agent in covenant with God is God. We are the recipients. What if there's more going on in baptism than just us or our parents choosing to follow God? Hear me now. What if this is God pulling us through waters to remind us that he has already cleansed us, that we are already his chosen ones? Consequently, the whole human family, as far as we know, is God's chosen people. But that's a subject for a different day. What if this is God pulling us through water to make a declaration of his own? You see, we could go back to Noah when God pulls Noah and his extended family through the chaos of the floodwaters, that's not even funny in Central Texas right now, to save them from spiraling wickedness, right? Maybe we could go back to the time of the Hebrews when the walled up waters of the Red Sea literally permitted them to walk through to escape slavery. A generation later, Joshua leads the Hebrews through the raging rapids of the Jordan River to take possession of the land that God had promised them. Maybe all of this is foreign to you. Maybe ancient examples don't work. Think of this. God pulls babies literally through amniotic fluid to introduce them to light and life in the world. Similarly, Paul and Peter seem to say, God pulls his people through the waters of baptism to demonstrate to the onlooking world that he picked us. 
What am I doing? I'm deflating the dogma around this sacrament and how it works perhaps in your family and in my family. There's nothing to fight about the unconditional love of God. We are all recipients. Maybe we have missed that this is God's moment to declare to the world. He pulls us through water to show that we are cleansed. You say, no way, preacher. Baptism is entirely about our desire to make a public declaration. Okay, let me remind you of this. Who owns the words spoken over Christ at Jesus' baptism in the Jordan? God the Father says, one single thought. This is my child in whom I am well pleased. It certainly appears to be God's moment to declare to the world what he thought of this man, Christ. What if God is the acting agent, an agency in the sacraments? Maybe the compelling and often overlooked theology of baptism is that this is his billboard. This is his IPO. This is his declaration of his fierce and unqualified love. This is his statement that he accepts us. Does it save us? Is it a symbol? Did it, take, did it take if you were a child? Is it the beginning of discipleship? Does it come at the end of discipleship? To me, the more interesting question is this. Can any water serve as a holy space for God to pull his children through to show the world what he thinks of us? I think the answer is yes. He is the agent in the sacraments. Any good, theology, any good sacramental theology has to make room for this. This is his public announcement. This is his statement to your family, to your world. God chooses us, all of us. Did you hear me? And he loves to declare that to anyone willing to watch. He loves to make that statement. We are his beloved children in whom he is well pleased. That's why a horse trough works as well as a baptismal font, as well as the ocean, as well as a swimming pool or a river. I've done them all. I've seen them all. I was personally baptized in the Little Pigeon River in December in Tennessee in the Smokies, and you can imagine how cold that was. Boy, do I remember those waters. Any water will do. Sprinkled, dunked, salty, sweet, clear, cloudy, it doesn't matter. So today I give you permission to be open-minded and generous around one of the most disputed symbols of our faith. You should be proud that your church makes this kind of stand, which is yes to the waters. How and when? What's most meaningful to you? Here's my encouragement. Let's all surrender, or if you need to, and you've done this in the past, re-surrender to these sacred waters, to this initial claim to the world that you belong, that you are clean, that as much as you would love to drag back to God's awareness the places you have been and the things that you have done, they are buried in the waters of baptism. Welcome to new life. That is the message. That is the undying message of the gospel. After 20 centuries, this is what remains around the waters that we cherish. Let's rejoice together that we have been pursued and found by God and that he finds us clean because of his love. He pulls us through water to remind us and to tell the world that we are chosen by him. So listen, if your heart is pounding this morning and you suddenly are aware that the reasons you have always had to not get baptized are suddenly meaningless, that's actually my intent. My hope is that you would join us in the waters. It doesn't take any kind of long class. I'm, like I said at the early service, we've got back, bapti, uh, basketball shorts and we've got clean towels from Walmart. Even if they just move water around, it'll work. That's my bad. 
But join us. If your heart is pounding, make that move. What we're going to do is we're going to leave here. We're going to gather our kids, and we're going to go straight to the fellowship hall where we have a, literally a galvanized horse trough on cinder blocks where we've got some warm water, and we're going to just call that water holy. We're going to call it sacred, and we're going to use that symbol as, as God sees fit. And so join us. So here's my invitation. If you are feeling the call to do that, leave while we're praying for the Eucharist and find your way to the fellowship hall. There will be people to help you know what to do to get changed out. We've baptized people in miniskirts. We've baptized people in street clothes, y'all. It, really, it's the question of going home wet. It's the inconvenience of brunch with wet clothes. That's really the problem. So, so I want you to join me on your feet. Let's pray. I hope some of you find hope in the fact that there seem to be fewer and fewer and fewer reasons to divide and fight and argue about the symbols of faith. I hope that you are aware that all of this is intentional. We're trying our best to drop every rationale that maintains the wall that leaves you on the inside and everyone else on the outside. Have you, have you, have you caught in that yet? You see what we're up to here? Baptism is no exception. And so let's pray.